Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. When I asked author Phil Shuey about how he would describe the famous physicist Freeman Dyson, this is what he told me. He's certainly a heretic. Heretic is a person who dramatically disagrees with mainstream thought on a number of issues, and the heretic who proves to be right, you could say, uh, on a subject worthy enough for importance, um, we call that person a prophet. That's a pretty fair assessment. Shuey just wrote Maverick Genius, the first biography of the iconic physicist, and has spent a lot of time researching the man. Throughout Dyson's long and storied career, his work has spanned everything from the physical to the philosophical. He's been called a genius, a visionary, and a subversive. One thing is for sure, he is above all else a living legend. Young Dyson was probably um, one of the greatest mathematical prodigies in England in the 1930s and early 40s. Um, He was self-taught in science. He went to a school in Winchester, England called Winchester College, which is considered by some to be the best private school in England. And in the year he was admitted there, he had the top scores in all five categories of entrance. So you could argue that in the year 1936, he was the best schoolboy in England. Um, He loved to read literature. He loved science, but he was best of all at mathematics. And he went from this private school to Cambridge, and then World War II came. Of course, during World War II, most boys his age were being drafted into the army to fight the Axis powers. Because of his mathematical skills, however, he went to something called Bomber Command. He would study the patterns of bombers flying over Germany and tried to determine how they could save more British lives, uh, keep uh, more of the planes from being shot down, and he was very good at that. This was his first foray into helping solve complex and technical problems posed to him by the government. Once the war ended, he came to the United States. He took a job at the prestigious Institute for Advanced Study and right off the bat was able to lend a hand to a problem that had bedeviled theoretical physicists for years. Uh, Just then, quantum science, which had been so valuable, so uh, productive in the 1920s and 30s, was undergoing a crisis. And Freeman Dyson, as he says, was lucky because he arrived in America just at the right time. He studied for just the right people that he fell into a a momentous uh, moment in physics where his mathematical skills could make a big difference. The equations quantum physicists were using at the time kept yielding impossible results, weird paradoxes and irresolvable infinities. When you get closer and closer to an electron, and imagine a a spaceship, you're going toward the electron. The closer you get to that electron, the more space becomes filled with a fizz of virtual particles, virtual energy. Uh, It it looks as if the electron has an infinite mass. It looks as if it's surrounded by an infinite amount of energy. It looks as if it has an infinite amount of charge. And uh, the quantum theory of the day didn't fully know what to do with this fizz. And Freeman Dyson, uh, and certainly in the company of several other scientists, such as Richard Feynman and Julian Schwigger, figured out a way to completely account for what seemed to be an infinite amount of energy lurking around every single electron. Schwinger, Feynman, and Sanichiro Tamanaga would later win a Nobel Prize for their work on this problem. The Nobel Committee probably would have given it to Dyson as well, but there's a rule that at most three people can share one prize. And it was Freeman Dyson's 
skill and his achievement to combine these two theories, the Schwinger theory and the Feynman theory, into a single theory which we now call quantum electrodynamics, or QED for short. But it's at this time, in the early 50s and mid-50s, when his life took on um, a very different cast. One thing he did was to work with Edward Teller to design a nuclear reactor, a safe, an intrinsically safe training reactor, which, if you count the number of sales of this reactor design over the years, is one of the best-selling reactor designs of all time. Always the visionary, Dyson had also started working on something far grander. He always had very colorful summer jobs, and uh, uh, Dyson found himself working for General Atomic on what could be called a nuclear rocket ship, a thing called Project Orion. That's right, an atomic bomb-powered rocket ship. The idea is that an enormous spaceship, 70 feet across, would detonate an atomic bomb behind it once every few seconds. And the the rest of the rocket ship, with huge shock absorbers, pushes off from that plasma wave left behind from the explosion. You think that the explosion should destroy the craft, but it doesn't. Instead, it kicks it along. And using this method, uh, the rocket ship can attain very high speeds, much higher than with conventional rockets. They did a a test shot using, (laughs) ironically, conventional rockets to simulate the the blowing up of these nuclear weapons, and it worked pretty well. Uh, It struggled along for a couple of years, and in 1965, it was finally canceled. And even Dyson now admits it never could have worked. Once you're in outer space, it's really neat. But it's the getting from the surface of the Earth to space that would have been a great difficulty because you have to blow off 10 or 20 or 30 nuclear bombs just to get above the atmosphere. There was another problem with using thousands of atomic bombs to propel a spaceship. It was made painfully clear by the nuclear testing the military was already carrying out. Hundreds of people were probably dying from the aggregate cancer burden brought about by the debris from these bombs. Many people said that we should have a treaty forbidding open-air testing of nuclear weapons. Dyson started out as a critic of this treaty. Many scientists still wanted to test bombs, not bombs to kill people, but nuclear bombs to be used for digging trenches or canals or harbors or for Dyson's nuclear rocket ship. But soon, Dyson started to reassess his position and reconsider what was really important. By studying the number of people who were dying each year, from this testing. Dyson decided to be for the treaty, and then Dyson himself testified in Congress in favor of the treaty, and the treaty was passed, and there has not been an open-air nuclear test since, at least on the, the parties who signed that treaty. Despite the demise of the nuclear rocket, he kept thinking about what else might be out there in the universe. So he's never lost his boyish love of outer space and and prospective colonization of space. And about that time, um, he and a few other people basically launched what we now call the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And in Dyson's case, um, he tried to imagine what a distant intelligent civilization would look like. He said, but one thing that an intelligent civilization would always have, and that would be cast off heat. Well, you can put an infrared camera on a telescope and look for meaningful heat. And he said one form this heat could take would be that very advanced civilizations could take materials and build 
vast solar arrays around stars. His point being that the Earth intercepts less than a hundredth or a thousandth percent of the light cast off by the sun. What if we could build solar arrays that would fill in much of the rest of the space around the sun at the orbit, orbital distance of the Earth? And this thing came later to be known as a Dyson sphere, and it figures prominently in an episode of Star Trek. One thing that's really remarkable about Dyson is how he's able to simultaneously keep his head in the stars, but also stay very grounded. And starting in the early 1960s, he started consulting with the prestigious yet secretive Jasons. The Jasons are a, an organization of about 60 or 70 scientists, um, and it's not a secret organization. Uh, not a lot of people knew about it for the first 10 years or so. And the way it works is the Pentagon funds the working of this organization. They bring a problem to the Jason organization in the spring, and, and Jason says, uh, and by Jason I mean the collective 60 or 70 scientists, we will study this problem over the summer during our six-week period. And then they come back with a report at the end. And Freeman Dyson has been one of the most faithful members of Jason. He hasn't, has hardly missed a meeting in about 50 or 60 years. They answer a range of technical questions. One of the most important ones that Dyson ever worked on was about what weapons to use in the Vietnam War, or rather, which weapons not to. One of them was a study uh, in 1965 of whether tactical nuclear weapons should be used in Vietnam. Small weapons, uh, in the, you know, smaller than the Hiroshima size uh, explosion, could or should be used in closing off the mountain passes through which the enemy was bringing supplies from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. They found that no matter how many they used, nukes would not stop the Viet Cong. And even worse? If the Allies, if the Western Allies started using tactical nuclear weapons, the Viet Cong would also, and that the Viet Cong was never concentrated in large numbers of troops, whereas the American Marines were like a sitting duck target, 20 or 30,000 at a time in a single place. And surely a tactical nuclear bomb could be smuggled in and would kill many, many uh, American troops. The other project I would mention is something called adaptive optics. Again, this begins with a military necessity, the necessity to detect and track ballistic missiles coming through uh, or above the atmosphere, and you need infrared detectors for doing that. And you need to detect these missiles very accurately from the ground, and to do that you have to look through a very turbulent atmosphere. And they worked out a system whereby um, the incoming light is reflected through um, a secondary mirror, which is made up of a bunch of facets, and that these facets depending on the atmospheric turbulence right now. If you look at a known star and looked at how the star twinkled, moment by moment, you could adjust the facets of the secondary mirror to negate. It's like noise reduction in a microphone. Um, and thereby get a clearer view of that object that you want to see. What works for incoming missiles, however, also works for astronomy. Nowadays, um, just about every optical telescope, large optical telescope in the world, uses this adaptive optics technique to clear, clear up, or counteract 
the effects of turbulence. So that, uh, I think Dyson refers to that as his single greatest scientific accomplishment within the Jason organization. It's hard to know if all this research on nuclear weapons prompted him to then start thinking about what the actual end of the universe would be like. Dyson said, well, what about the late universe? What happens a trillion years from now or a trillion trillion years from now? Surprisingly, as late as the mid-1970s, that theory had not been much thought about. And so Dyson was the first to very deeply, thoroughly um, piece out a theory which explained what happens. Uh, Planets melt, stars fly apart or implode and explode. Even galaxies fly apart over the course of trillions of years. Even black holes, which swallow up material, themselves, or so we believe, eventually evaporate. And before you know it, uh, at least after trillions or trillions of trillions of years, the universe will be just about devoid of what we nowadays would call regular matter because everything would have flown apart. Maybe even protons fly apart. And you'd be left with nothing but, but radio waves and maybe electrons. The nice thing about the Institute for Advanced Study, where Dyson spent most of his career, is they give you a tremendous latitude to explore a wide variety of interests. For the last 30 years or so, he hasn't been so much a practicing scientist uh, cranking out new research as he is an essayist. As early as the 1950s, he started to write the occasional magazine article. He wrote uh, semi-public essays for Physics Today magazine. He's probably written more book reviews in Physics Today magazine than any other person, Scientific American articles. In the 60s, he started to write the occasional piece for uh, newspapers, and then in the 70s, even a few articles for The New Yorker. He's written for New Republic, for Harper's, for Atlantic. And then in the 70s, he actually started to write books, um, some of which are just compilation of essays and book reviews he's written elsewhere. But in the 1970s, he became um, essentially a writer, and he has remained a writer to this day. Recently, his writings have made him a bit of a controversial figure in the scientific community. His inner iconoclast has put him at odds with much of the scientific establishment over the effects and necessary responses to climate change. If you only know one thing about Freeman Dyson, you don't know that he was a physicist or that he uh, helped the nuclear test ban treaty. What you know is that he is a scientist who is skeptical of claims, doom claims of climate change. So he's not a, a raving madman. Uh, you can't even say that he's, uh, that he's ignorant on these issues because he was one of the first climate modelers in the 1970s at Oak Ridge National Lab. He participated in some of the first climate modeling studies done. So he knows something about what he's talking about. He may not be privy to the very latest climate science, but he does know something about what he's talking about. What is Freeman Dyson saying or not saying? First, he does not deny that CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere. He does not deny that it's chiefly, that increase is chiefly due to human technology. He does not deny that some bad things are going to happen. If the sea level rises, then uh, half of Florida is going to go underwater and other coastal areas are going to be flooded. Um, he, he, He doesn't like that. He doesn't say that that's a good thing for sure. He maintains, however, that there are many good things if the uh, mean average temperature of the Earth, or at least in northern latitudes, 
rose by a degree or two, that would, for instance, extend the growing season for wheat in Canada. It might mean thousands or millions of acres become uh, plantable in a place like Siberia. Uh, so there are good things, he says. Um, he also hesitates to subscribe or formulate policy on the basis of computer modeling. Dyson says, no, you can't do that. The, the um, climate models, even with our supercomputers we have nowadays, aren't good enough. And so to undertake a project of shutting down every coal-fired power plant in America or the civilized world would be too expensive. And to spend all that money shutting down those coal plants, that money could be better spent um, feeding people in Africa, undertaking literacy programs, and increasing, uh, improving hygiene everywhere. Controversial, subversive, heretic, maverick, visionary, genius, they really do all describe Freeman Dyson. Well, that's all for this week's Physics Central podcast. You can find more of our podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, other profiles, and so much more at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>